This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. transforming us, for renewing our minds and bringing us before the Father and Son. May we be convicted today, invigorated and and refreshed. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So I was wondering, uh, have y'all heard the one about the nursing home in Florida? Yes! You have! Just, they, they totally had that. I'm just going to skip it. I'm just going to skip it. Smart Alex. Smart Alex. Um, so I'm going to tell it anyways. Just don't give the punchline away. So uh, one day at a nursing home in Florida, uh, a group of senior citizens were sitting around talking about their aches and their pains. And uh, my arms... They're, they're, they're so weak, I can barely lift up this cup of coffee, said Beatrice. I know what you mean, said Wally. My cataracts, <laughs> my cataracts are so bad, I can't even see my coffee. And several others, they shook their heads weakly in agreement. My blood pressure pills make me dizzy, said Margot. Well, said Arthur, slowly nodding in disappointment. I guess that's the price we pay for getting old. It was a moment of silence, a little longer than usual, and no one said anything. And then Norma, a sweet elderly lady with puffy blue hair and frail vocal cords piped up, she said, well, come on, y'all. It's not that bad, she said optimistically. Thank God we can all still drive. So, (laughs) that's good. I thought that would get a bigger one. You must have told the punchline, right? But sometimes we're not willing to acknowledge our blind spots. Uh, Sometimes, right, we we need to do a second take. And as you may recall, we're in this sort of mini-series right now uh, about second takes. We're calling it Take Two. And at, at the start of this week, I was working on my van. I was working on my van at the start of this week. Um... And after spending more than enough time on it, uh, I had to get a second take. In this case, someone else's opinion. And that, well, it led to a third take, uh, getting a third person's opinion. And at the end of it all, I had to own up to my mistake. I'd messed the car up trying to repair it. It was a $150 mistake that I made. Now the car's running. Uh, But I needed a fresh set of eyes, right? I needed a fresh set of eyes to give me some new perspective on things. And so um, this morning, uh, as we inch closer to the last of our Nazarene articles of faith, we come to 14 out of 16, which has to do with the topic of divine healing. And what I want us to do this morning is get a second take on this matter. 
You know, there are all sorts of misunderstandings on this topic. The televangelists, right, they are keen on pitching us a prosperity message that says, if you send in the right amount of seed money, a proportionate amount of healing will flow back your direction. <clears throat> Try again, right? The, the faith healing crowds, they, they tell folks that they remain sick because of some sin in their life that they haven't admitted or confessed or repented of. And they, they can't and they won't experience healing until that's done away with. Um, no, no. The, the cessationists, right, uh, these, they, they, they claim that miracles like healing, they either A, died out when the last apostle died, or B, died out when scripture was complete and put together. Wrong, wrong. So many, right, they, they, they simply treat prayer as if it's almost magical that if they can get the right combination of words, find the right words, It'll just somehow crack this divine code, break the spell, and bring them healing. No. Right? No. So, you see, there are lots of misunderstandings, and those few that I just mentioned likely only begin to scratch the surface. And this morning, I want to help shift us to a place where our thinking on divine healing aligns with the Scripture. And as such, is a healthy view about divine healing. So, since we're on this topic, we're going to go ahead and look at Article 14. You see it up here? It's very brief. This is the briefest, I think, of all the articles. It says this. We believe that in the scriptures, divine healing occurs. We urge all Nazarenes to offer a prayer born of their allegiance to God for healing of the sick. We also believe God heals through the means of medical science. That's it. That's very, very brief. It's a bit sparse, I think. It's not as robust of an affirmation of divine healing as I'd like to see. At the same time, uh, it's simple, it's to the point, and it doesn't go overboard, which is a good thing. But there, so there are two points, I think, that are worthy of note. One, that this does affirm that divine healing occurred in the scriptures, which is something that actually many people have shrugged off, right? or they have tried to explain that away. And two, it does encourage us to pray uh, to, to pray for divine healing as well as healing through medical treatments. Uh, I, for one, I, I don't actually see medical treatment and divine healing as opposed to one another. Right? I'm going to say more on that in a bit. But let me be clear. Uh, Nazarenes do affirm divine healing. I was online a few weeks ago on Facebook. I need to stay off Facebook. I was on Facebook, um, and there was this internet troll Right, it was bashing Nazarenes, saying that Nazarenes are, for all intents and purposes, cessationists. Um, now, you've heard me use that term before, cessationists, um, but not in relation to Nazarenes or Wesleyans, right? You recall that a cessationist is one who believes, as I alluded to already, that miracles such as divine healings ceased, right? or they died out when the last apostle died or when the canon, the biblical canon was finished. So... I'm not that. I'm not a cessationist, right? We are not that. We are not that. And as we continue thinking together for a few moments this morning, I'll make it clear what I am, right? Um, and, and suggest that you, in your own faith journey, uh, it may be a, a position for you to adopt as well. You may not be there yet. That's fine. But I want you to continue thinking on it. So, to get us to this point, uh, I want to ask and answer three questions about miracles in general and healing in particular. 
and you can see them up here on the screen. The first is this. Do miracles like those in Scripture still happen? For example, divine healing. Uh, two, if miracles do still exist, why don't they occur as much as they did in biblical times? Anybody ever thought that question before? Some of you have thought that. And the third, why does God heal only sometimes? Right, so these are the three questions that I want us to be thinking about uh, this morning. And so I want to turn to Luke 9, 1 to 6, which is our focal passage. The text says this. We can read it up here together. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staff, nor haversack, nor bread, nor money, and don't have a spare tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there. And when you leave, let your departure be from there. As for those who do not welcome you, when you leave their town, shake the dust from your feet as evidence against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. Now, because we're encountering this text right in the middle of Luke's story, uh, we need to stop, and we need to take stop, and we need to explore a bit before arriving at any conclusions about things. Right? We need to know, for instance, that when Jesus' followers are commissioned by him, the charge is twofold. One, to proclaim the kingdom of God, and two, to heal. And so, in 436, Luke 436, for instance, Jesus... Uh, is recognized and spoken of as one who has authority to drive out demons and heal. So we're going back in the story to understand how we got to where we are. So in 436, Jesus is giving us authority right, to heal and drive out demons. And if we move um, slightly backward in the text, we see at 418, for instance, um, these things already sort of happening in Jesus' ministry. They surface again later in chapter 4, at 440 through 444. And then you see him in chapter 6, in verses 7 to 18, 17 to 18. You see him in chapter 8, right? But it was in 5, 1 through 11, where Jesus first called the disciples to become partners and participants in his ministry. And part of the end result of that is that in time, others would also be called upon by Jesus. The goal would be to serve with the same vision, the same divine aim. What that looked like from Jesus' perspective is stated in Luke 5.2. Peter and the rest of the fishing crew would now start catching people. Right? We go, it's fishing for men, right? But catching people, fishing for people. And part of this would be that they would be equipped with Jesus' own credentials described in 4.36 as having authority to drive out demons of you. So these people are getting... Uh, Jesus' followers are getting Jesus' credentials to do this. And so within this scene in 9, 1 to 6 that we just read, which by the way, it actually has a parallel in chapter 10, uh, 1 through 11, the disciples are given authority. And these abilities, they're given to them by Jesus. Like Jesus, however, they should expect that at times they're going to face rejection. Jesus warned them about that. They're going to be refused hospitality. Jesus warned them about this. And as they set out on their journeys from house to house, they shouldn't go about through the village seeking better accommodations after something's already been offered. Right? That would be an act that would bring shame upon the hosts, for one. It would bring shame upon them. It would bring shame upon the Jesus movement. 
Jesus also says that if they're not welcomed, that they should shake the dust off their feet and move on. And you've all heard this before, right? You know that dust, right, uh, to, to the feet made you physically sort of unclean, dirty. But it was also, especially for the Jews at this time, a symbolic act. Uh, an act of cleansing that if they had been in Gentile territory, right, then they're cleansing that off of themselves as well. There's a scholar by the name of Joel Green, and he says this, uh, ordinarily, uh, this shaking the dust off one's feet was an action related to self-purification. But here, it's specifically interpreted as a performative testimony against the village, designed not then to render the traveler clean, again, but to declare the village unclean. And to cite Green again, when we get to uh, 9, 1 to 6, he says, for the first time in Luke's narrative, the disciples share actively in Jesus' ministry. These verses we just read is the first time they're doing that. He says, indeed, the portfolio of Jesus' disciples begins now to unfold in a way that adds content and vitality to their previous status as his companions. They're empowered and sent out to engage in mission, in a mission, the focus of which obviously reflects his own. They're instructed regarding personal comportment and social relations, particularly with respect to issues of kinship and status. And so, as we consider this, we notice that for the apostles, part of their task was to proclaim and heal. And when we look at Luke's gospel as a whole, we see these things that are meant to extend beyond the apostles themselves. When we go on to the book of Acts, Luke's second writing, uh, we see, in fact, that's exactly what happened. And as history bears it out, such things never ceased. They didn't cease. And this would mean then that access to the miraculous, to divine healing, they're still before us today. So this gets to the first of those questions. Do miracles like divine healing still exist today? My answer is yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We have many modern accounts of this. And even in my own life, I've experienced this just once, just once. And it's actually just a couple months ago, right, just once in my life. But this quickly leads to the second question then. Why don't miracles like divine healing happen as frequently today as they did then? This honestly, it seems like a great question. But when you get actually behind the question, you realize that it implies something. It implies that miracles occurred more in the ancient world and less today. And I don't, I don't necessarily like the implication there. To me, it's a troubling line of thought, a, a troubling prospect. And to address this, here's what I did. I decided this week to spend a good time of my week counting and tabulating. And so I wanted to, to confirm my hypothesis that this isn't the case, that there were more miracles back then than there are today. My, that was my hypothesis, that miracles like divine healing happen with about the same frequency today as they did then. So here's what I mean. When I looked across the scriptures, when I looked across the scriptures, uh, the whole scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, I arrived at some interesting numbers. I found that in the Old Testament, there are 83 miracles that occur. It was actually a bit surprising. I thought there would be more. But I wanted to go a bit further. There are 23,145 verses in the Old Testament. So when we gathered together the 83 miracle stories, 
that actually span 371 verses of the Old Testament. Percentage-wise, this means that only 1.6 of the Old Testament deals with miracles. That was mind-blowing to me. I thought it was going to be way up on the charts, right? Or I could state it differently. 99.4 or 98.4% of the Old Testament deals with the day-to-day, the mundane living of life. So what about the New Testament? Well, there's a lot more miraculous stuff like healing going on there, right? No, not really. There are only 80 miracles that occur in the New Testament. In total, there are 7,957 verses. And of those, only 376 verses cover miracles. This means that only 4.72% of the whole New Testament focuses on miracles, which include divine healings. 4.72%, not even 5% of the New Testament is dealing with miracles. So let's zoom in and bring the two together, right? So you see that there are... 31,102 verses in Holy Scripture. There are 163 miracles in all of Scripture that span 747 verses. This means that for the entirety of Scripture, only 2.4% talks about miracles. Again, stated differently, this means that 97.6% of Scripture talks more about the day-to-day, the mundane, the bread-making, traveling, Cooking, eating, teaching, raising families, working, etc. And you know what? The same is true in our lives today. The same is true in our world today. God is there in the day today. He's in the mundane with us. And these instances of, of sim- simple, godly, holy moments as we've been talking about. He's there. And as a result, we need to be attuned to that. But the point is this. The miraculous, when we look across the span of Scripture, occurs with rarity. It occurs with great rarity. Miraculous divine healing occurs with great rarity. And so to reiterate, I do think miracles like divine healing still exist. As I said, yes, absolutely, they still exist. We have many modern accounts of this, and even in my own life. Like I said, I experienced this once just a couple of months ago. I was having a vertigo spell, a, va- a very bad vertigo spell. I couldn't walk. Tried to stand up and walk, and I ran into the wall twice. Sat down and laid my head on a desk, and the room was spinning. And a guy walked up, put his hands on me, prayed for me, and boom, it was gone. Only time. Only time I've ever experienced or witnessed anything like that sort of immediate healing. So across the span of my own life, if you look at that percentage-wise, man, it's low. It's, a, it's like less than, way less than 1%. And this is why I, I don't refer to myself as a cessationist, one who believes miracles ceased. They still occur. I believe miracles continue to exist and occur, but as they did in the biblical times, with rarity. I'm just curious about such things because I think some have tended to blow such things out of control. So I'm not a cessationist. I refer to myself as a continuationist, right? The the gifts continue on. But I want to qualify that and say I, I refer to myself as a cautious continuationist. I'm a cautious continuationist. There's your word for the day, by the way. Cautious continuationist. It's in your bulletin. 
I believe, as I've already said, miracles like divine healing occur, but they do so with rarity. So I'm cautious about affirming something as miraculous until I can discern the Spirit's work in it and identify the fruit. So I'm cautious. I'm cautious. But this, this brings us then to the toughest of questions. Why does God heal sometimes but not others? That's the hardest one. Some, they don't even try to answer it. They don't try. They chalk it up to mystery, and I can understand that. I get that. It's a mystery we don't know. Right? That's up to God. I, I get that. But I wonder if we can dig a little bit deeper. Many have tried to answer this. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian thinker, he gave three reasons. Uh, he, he, he said these. One, God only heals sometimes because our, our illness or our sickness or our pain, it can produce, God can use that to produce humility in us. He said, two, God can use that to help us break down or rethink our ideas about God. And three, that the, the pain and the sickness can actually turn us toward God and have us rely on Him more. And to that, uh, I humbly add a couple of things to what C.S. Lewis said. Um, from my perspective, uh, we can go back to the first several sermons that I preached in this long series on the Articles of Faith. Right? Uh, the ones on the Trinity and each member of the Trinity. You remember that we talked about uh, one of the foremost traits of God the Father is being pathos-filled. He's pathos-filled. That is, God the Father feels deeply. He feels deeply. And God the Son, He suffered deeply. And God the Spirit, He grabs us and He turns us back toward the Father and the Son and He brings us to and before the Father and the Son because they get it. So here's the thing that I'd had. It's not just that... It's not just humans that suffer. God suffers too when we suffer. God hurts when we hurt. So it may not be, one, it may not be the healing we think we need when we ask for it. God may heal us inwardly, for instance, while we're still ailing outwardly. Secondly, uh, it was through suffering. We've got to remember this. It was through suffering that God brought about salvation. Like he used suffering to do that. He used pain and suffering to save us. So God, he's not going to force harm upon us, right? And by the same token, he may not take it away. He may, he may however, take our pain and use it for his good if we so allow him. It doesn't mean he's causing it, right? But it does mean that if we let him, he may use it. To bring him glory. Sometimes uh, the prayers are answered in other unexpected ways. And even though I've given these answers, I'm still left a little bit unsatisfied with, with those answers. I want to be, dig a little bit deeper still. Y'all know me. To do that, I'm going to get theological with you for a minute. So I want you to hang tight with me. Right? This is not too hard to understand. Y'all are good thinkers. You're good theologians. So I want you to follow me here. I want, to take, I want to take just a moment and consider another great Christian thinker. His name was Thomas Aquinas. Anybody ever heard of Thomas Aquinas? Some of you? All right, good. Thomas Aquinas. One of his main uh, views, all right, Thomas Aquinas, was um, what he, he talked about these things called causes. Causes. 
um, one person or one thing causes another to happen. Or in the words of one thinker, all things depend on God entirely for their existence and their action at every point. So they find in God not only the cause of their being, but also their final end. So when Thomas Aquinas referred to God, he referred to God as the first cause. That's how he described God, the first cause. And when he referred to humans, when he referred to nature, when he referred to everything else in the world, he referred to them as secondary causes. So God's the first cause. Humans and everything else are the secondary causes. And so I'm going I'm to cite one commentator here. He says, Aquinas says that the word miracle comes from the Latin word admiratio, suggesting that, get this, you gotta, you got to get this, that wonder, wonder that accompanies the experience of something whose cause is hidden from us. That's a really, really important uh, way to think about it. Wonder, a miracle, right, is the experience of something whose cause is hidden from us. We don't know the cause, in other words. Right, so God, he's this first cause of everything. He can do a miracle. And if he so chooses, get this, God can choose to hide the second cause through which the miracle comes, such as healing, from us. Are you still with me? Yes. So we have primary causes, God, only, and secondary cause. But the, the, oh, a miracle, a wonder, is the secondary cause is hidden from us. We haven't discovered it. That's all, that's all we're saying here. So, I want to suggest that God, it's not the case that God always hides his secondary causes in miracles. He doesn't always hide the secondary cause, for instance, of healing. There's a Christian thinker named Brian Davies, and he says this, For Aquinas, a miracle occurs because of what is not present or may not be present. Its secondary cause is hidden. And he asked, what if God, out of loving fidelity to creatures, works consistently through secondary causes for miracles? I think that's really interesting and important. And I think we're on to something with that. I think he's absolutely right. I think it goes with the point I made before, that God acts consistently. God is not acting now in a way that he didn't act before. God in the scriptures, across the scriptures, was doing miraculous things through secondary causes, through humans, through nature, through other things. And sometimes we humans recognized the source of those secondary causes. Sometimes they didn't. When I was having that spell just a few weeks ago and the, the man walked up and put his hands on me and prayed for me, I don't know, was the secondary cause... The hands? Was it the prayer? Was it a conjunction of both? Did my faith have anything to do with it? So what is the secondary cause that remains hidden from me? And so I'm left in wonder. I am wondering, wow, what happened? What was the source of this secondary cause? Was it me? Was it him? I don't know. So that secondary cause is hidden from me. I haven't discovered it yet. And so that, that's how God works through these secondary causes a lot of times. But the, the source is still hidden from us. This theologian Dennis Edwards said it this way. It's not that God creates a world that is distant 
from God so that in order to communicate, God needs to intervene in the world from time to time. That's not how it works. Rather, the natural world that God has created with all its processes, with all its laws of nature, exists within God's own act of bestowal. He says the laws of nature are part of God's own self-giving to humans. They're an element of grace that God works through. God doesn't need to break the laws of nature to work. And a lot of people think of a miracle that way, as a sort of a violation of the laws of nature. That's not what it is. A miracle is just, uh, 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 the, source of the, the source of it is sometimes hidden from us. Sometimes not. Right? And so God can act and do miraculous things without violating the laws of nature. And he does. He does those things. And so these are marvels of God's gracious self-communication to us. Sometimes they occur at levels beyond the laws that we know at present. We're still discovering scientific laws. You all know that. Right? We're still discovering these things. So maybe we just haven't figured out this law or this cause yet. Right? in terms of biology or chemistry or physics. A person suffering from cancer might pray with her community for healing from the cancer and find herself miraculously restored to health. And according to the line of thought that I'm developing here, we don't need to take this as God acting without secondary causes. It may be well that God is acting through a secondary cause that we just don't fully understand yet. It may be that science will one day understand more clearly how prayer, right, how, how prayer and human solidarity and love and faith can contribute to healing. We just don't know yet. We're still seeking answers to this. Thankfully, people are studying it and looking deeply into it. But there's something that we intuitively as Christians know. We believe that prayer works. We believe that God hears our prayers. How? It's still a mystery. It's still a wonder to us. But we can dig deeper and keep trying to explore that and, and go deeper into the mystery of God himself. And so a person who is cured from illness in a way that science can't explain and who finds God providentially at work in a cure so that it becomes for him or her a call and addressed by God, they, they might well see this as a miracle, a wonderful manifestation, a, a sign of the Spirit of God. A person might receive as a gift the capacity to make peace in a damaged relationship and experience this as a miracle of grace, a miracle of healing. Well, you know that when healing occurs in our relationships, right? That can be miraculous. Such events, right? We, we, we maybe don't know how any law of nature is or isn't at work. But they are marvelous manifestations of the Spirit. And that, my friends, I think is a healthy way of viewing divine healing. God doesn't break the laws of nature and to heal and do miracles. He works within them. Which makes sense that God created this place. And he condescended down into it. And he works within it. And this might mean that we might need to revisit or modify our definition of what a miracle is. 
to rethink that. It's not necessarily a violation of nature. God is acting through it. It doesn't quite resolve the question to my liking. I want to know the answer like fully, simply, easily. I wonder, could it be that we're stifling God's secondary causes when healing doesn't come? Is, does it have something? Are we block? God's trying to channel healing through a secondary cause, but we're blocking it? I think so. I think so. Sometimes we do that. Some people refuse to go to a doctor. Maybe God's trying to work through that. Right? In your relationships, in my relationships, right? Sometimes we cut ties and that healing can't flow through. We block a means of a secondary cause that God could work through. And this is life. <laughs> We're trying to figure it out. But God, God does seem absent sometimes when we call out. Prayers for healing sometimes feel like God doesn't hear or isn't listening or isn't present or he's just absent. But we are, at the end of the day, promised that God is present. Perhaps he's healing us in unknown ways. Perhaps he's using our sickness, our pain, or our illness for a greater good in our own lives or our relationships or maybe for his own glory. There's an ancient Jewish set of writings known as the Talmud. And in it, these Jews, they're discussing their long-awaited Messiah. Sadly, Jesus was just that, and, and these, these Jews missed it. But in it, it says this, Rabbi Yeshua bin Levi came upon Elijah the prophet while he was standing at the entrance of Rabbi Simeron ben Yohai's cave. And he asked Elijah, when will the Messiah come? And Elijah replied, go and ask him yourself. Well, where is he? Sitting at the gates of the city. Well, how shall I know him? He's sitting among the poor, covered with wounds. The others unbind all their wounds at the same time and then bind them up again. But he unbinds them one at a time and binds it up again, saying to himself, Perhaps I shall be needed, and if so, I must always be ready so as not to delay for a moment. To me, that sounds just like Jesus. As I noted moments ago, God the Father feels deeply for us. God the Son bears wounds for us. And God the Spirit, He carries us before the deeply hurting Father and the wounded Son. And whenever we hurt, wherever we hurt, we only need to realize that the Spirit, as He brings us before the wounded healer, that wounded Messiah, and into the presence of the Father, He does so not simply so that we can seek what we want from Him, so that we can seek what we want to get from Him. But, because simply being in God's presence is in its own way a means of divine healing. In all of the healing, maybe this is the best point I can give this morning, all of the healing that we experience here, all of the healing that we read about in the scriptures, all of the miracles Jesus did where he healed people, they're only temporary anyway. They're only temporary anyway. 
to cite Edwards again, he says, Jesus recognized these specific actions as practical anticipations of salvation to come. Reflection on this suggests that our own practices of healing and liberation, incomplete and as limited as they are, may be seen as a participation in and an anticipation of God's coming reign in full. So whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse who helps bring about healing across uh, an extended amount of time, or someone through whom God has acted so as to bring it instantaneously, or you're someone who trusts that God can and may do it, your task and my task is to remain open to it, to be an open channel for God to work. And our task is to remain obedient, to be a channel of good news, of grace, and of healing wherever we go. Amen? Amen. With that, if you're able to stand this morning, uh, I'd like you to do that together. If not, you can remain seated where you are. But in a posture of receiving, I'd like you to turn your palms upright to the Lord and receive this blessing and this charge, this benediction. And now, may you rest in the assurance that God the Father feels deeply your joys and your sorrows. And may you take comfort in the promise of our Lord Jesus that by His stripes we are healed. And may you grow in your confidence that the same Spirit who was at work in both the miraculous and the mundane thousands of years ago is still at work in you and in me and in us today. Go in peace assured, comforted, and confident in our God. Amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.